Let me encourage you to take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke in the 22nd chapter. Luke chapter 22. The last Lord's Day, uh, I began a series of sermons on the message of Christ crucified tonight. This is the second of that series. The first was the message of Christ crucified is set forth in prophecy. And tonight we're going to look at the message of Christ crucified as taught by our Lord himself. Luke chapter 22 beginning with verse 14, and this is the institution of the Lord's Supper. And if you would, notice the language carefully as I read it audibly in our hearing. Hear the word of God. Luke 22, beginning with verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at, the ta at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly or fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever. Let's seek the face of God together and ask his blessing upon the ministry of his word. Let's pray. O oh, Holy Father, we bow in your presence, conscious of the reality that you're never weary of your people seeking your face in prayer. And we read again and again in your word that you are weary with empty form and religious sham, as it were. We read of your complaint that your people seem to be weary of you and for that reason would not approach you. But we never read a word that would ever discourage any of us from coming in our felt need and crying out, Lord, have mercy upon us. And so we do so together this night. We confess, Father, that our minds are natively dark and restless and unable to concentrate as we ought to proceed to understand your truth. And so we feel our need to ask that you would be pleased to send forth your spirit, that under his present and powerful influence, we may come both to understand and to receive in faith and obedience these words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hear our cry as together we present this petition before you in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Anyone who picks up the Bible for the very first time 
and begins therein to sort of leaf through the pages of the Gospels of the New Testament with some measure of attention and some degree of comprehension regarding its contents, that person will gradually, indeed increasingly, come to the inevitable conclusion that there is this astounding disproportion of their contents devoted not to the teaching of Jesus, not to the miracles of Jesus, and not to the ministry of Jesus, but to the preparation for those events leading up to and culminating in the crucifixion of our Lord upon Golgotha. Now somewhere between the third to one half of the actual content of the gospel records is focused not then upon the teaching of Jesus, but upon the circumstances and those details leading up to and terminating in his death upon the cross. Now it is this reality, to be sure, that sets our Lord utterly apart from any other religious figure that we've ever known. Normally, when we think of other religious leaders, their death would be lamented as the end, the last word, so to speak, on their career. And if such a figure died young, people would speak of that one being cut off in their prime. And they would reflect, perhaps wistfully, if not dismally, upon all the things he might have done had he only lived long enough to do so. Now, in contrast to such a figure as that, the focal point to which our Lord Jesus is continually directing our attention is not on his life, not upon his miraculous works, not upon his teaching, but again upon his death. He does this repeatedly. He constantly makes reference to it, describing it as his hour, his hour. From the very beginning of his public ministry, you'll recall in John chapter 2, he says to his mother, My hour has not yet come. And at various, various stages of his life, he speaks of his coming hour. And it is not until he himself is within the shadow of the cross does he say, The hour has come. The conclusion, then, is inescapable. It is the hour of his ultimate destiny. It is the hour for which his coming into the world finds its principal purpose, that being the hour of his death. Now, he gives us the sum and the substance of his mission for his coming into the world when he describes it in this way. For example, in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, he says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He says this repeatedly. The apostles themselves bear witness to the reality that this is what he commissioned them to preach. I'm thinking of the apostle Paul when he says, I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins 
according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3. Now, that seems to be clearly and indisputably the central focus of all of the New Testament's teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. The supreme reason for his coming into the world was to die the death of a sin bearer. Now, that is really the great issue, the great concern of the Christian gospel. What is the real significance, then, of this central event of the Christian message? What is the real purpose of the death of Jesus with respect to the hour of which he so often spoke in the gospels? Well, some may suggest that there's little difficulty in understanding the death of Jesus, why he died. Some would say, well, you know, he died because he was something of a revolutionary figure who agitated the contemporaries of his day. That he was convicted in the Jewish courts of speaking blasphemy against God was convicted before the Roman magistrate of sedition and insurrection, of speaking against Caesar. And then others would say, well, you know, he died because he was simply the victim of the small minds of men who failed to recognize his true greatness. Now, to some degree, all of those things are true. But as far as some of these go... They, they do have that measure of truth to them. But the problem is, is that none of those explanations go far enough. And nor do they go to the central point. Not even faintly upon the heart and the center of what Jesus himself tells us about his death. In fact, they all ignore the central and essential truth of the matter as to why he is going to die. That he did not go to his death because he was compelled to do so, or that he was harried there by the circumstances around him. That he was subject to the hands of evil men over which he had no concern, not at all. He did not go to his death because of a series of interconnected or interdependent events. Nor did he go there because of a series of events that were beyond entirely his own control. No, he went to his death because he in his mind was resolved that he would not turn himself aside from setting his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem and there to suffer as had been the purpose of his heavenly father. And when someone like the apostle Peter would draw him aside and said, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. This is not what you're to do. Jesus in turn confronts him and says, get behind me, Satan, eat my dust, as it were, because you are savoring the things of men and not the things of God. Because that providential rendezvous with what awaited him at the city of Jerusalem constituted the very design and purpose for his coming into the world. The Son of Man, he says, the Son of Man must 
suffer many things. That he must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and rise again the third day. So the clear teaching of Jesus, according to not someone else's, but his own testimony, was to be sure that his death was to be no accident of fate, nor some kind of unhappy martyrdom. No. Why then did he die? Well, the testimony of the New Testament, of the apostles in the New Testament, they do not leave us into doubt either. The Apostle Paul says this. He expresses it in five simple words. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Or Christ died for our sins. Or in the language of Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. Christ died for the ungodly. The apostle Peter wrote, he, Christ, also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Now, if you have been following me closely thus far, you may be asking, well, isn't that really the problem, David, that what we read in the Bible about the death of Jesus is what the apostles preached? That great and sometimes difficult theology of the apostle Paul, have they not complicated what is essentially simple in nature? That Jesus died, perhaps, to show the love of God to men? That Jesus died in order to give us an example of self-sacrifice in the interest of others? Would not Jesus himself, as some suggest, almost be embarrassed by this theologizing of the Apostle Paul and by everything that is involved with this so-called doctrine of atonement? Well, as we would say, I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> because I want to answer it. Look at the 22nd chapter of Luke from which I read and consider the institution of that sacrament by which Jesus said to his disciples he was to be remembered and which we call the Lord's Supper. For it is here, perhaps supremely in all of his ministry, that the Lord Jesus sets before us according to him Something that is to be the very essence, indeed, the true significance and meaning of his death. Now, the scene of the occasion here is set in Jerusalem, within the walls of what Luke calls, a few verses earlier, a large furnished upper room. And it is the last night of Jesus before his crucifixion. And what we discover as we enter into the scene of this upper room in the gospel narrative is that the very atmosphere of this occasion is not some nostalgic looking back to a mission that had failed and was now finished. Much to the contrary, the context of the scene from the perspective of the Lord Jesus Christ himself was one of anticipation, of looking forward to the success, to the victory of the mission that was yet to be accomplished in his death. 
And that leads me to the first thing we learn from Luke's account of the Lord's Supper. Jesus is underscoring here at the very institution of this sacrament that his death is not some plan B, as it were, but that this is the central and essential issue of his mission. Because the institution of the Lord's Supper, you see, is the establishing of an indicator, as it were, by Jesus, which is going to point for all future ages to the most vital part of his mission and sealed upon in the hearts and minds of his disciples. Do this, he says, in remembrance of me. Now, when he sets such a memorial before them, what is it that our Lord is emphasizing? What is it, Jesus says, is the one thing they must never forget? Well, he takes a loaf of bread, he gives thanks, and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. And then he takes a cup of wine and he says, Matthew 26, verse 26, This cup is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, clearly, what our Lord is giving us here is a visible dramatization of his death. The focus is not upon his birth. It's not upon his life. It's not upon his miraculous signs and wonders. It's not even on his teaching and all of its majestic and magisterial beauty. Not at all. He doesn't even talk at this point about his resurrection, though he has alluded to it. It's not about his teaching. You'll recall that in the Gospels, they said, never a man spoke like this man. We're told elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke that the people marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. But none of that is what is in mind here. This was to be a visual dramatization of his dying on the cross in shame as the sin bearer of his people. Now that is completely consistent with everything that the Lord Jesus had been preparing his disciples to embrace. The Son of Man did not come to serve, but to be served, or, or to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And again, as we noted last time, he often cited the Old Testament scriptures and identified himself as the suffering servant of Yahweh, of whom we read in Isaiah 53. The Son of Man come in his sufferings to serve and to give his life as a ransom, as a redemption for many. This is written, Jesus said, this that is written must be accomplished in me. And as we noted last time, he cited from the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, indicating to us that it was speaking of himself when it read, for he was numbered with the transgressors. Luke 22 and verse 37. Now, the very existence of the Lord's Supper, the truth that this is the memorial meal that the Lord Jesus Christ gave us, which is the central truth 
that he wanted to impart into the lives and the minds of his disciples to be remembered the very fact of the institution proclaimed every time you and I come to the Lord's table, we come and share in the Lord's Supper that his death is to be the very center and the core of his ministry and purpose for his coming into the world. You'll remember that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that when we come to the table, what does he say? We proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So there's the first thing we learn about the passage. Jesus drives home the truth that his death is central to his mission. But then we discover in the second place that he connects his death, notice, with the Passover. And this is the other major thing upon which I want us to reflect this evening. He connects his death with the Passover. In fact, it's instituted against the backdrop of the Passover. You'll notice that the timing of this whole institution is purposefully arranged and prescribed by Jesus at the beginning of the passage. And I'm thinking in particular of Luke chapter 22 and verse 7, where we read, Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. And it is against the backdrop of the Passover, that our Lord Jesus Christ then is pleased to institute this memorial meal. And whatever else we may say about this, and there is great difficulty when you read some of the scholars about the timing of the Passover at this particular period, but it is surely the context in which the Lord's Supper is established. Indeed, if you look more closely at Luke chapter 22 and verse 17, and the verses which follow it becomes clear that with respect to the Passover and the institution of the Lord's Supper, the one was merged and absorbed into the other. The Lord's Supper grew, as it were, out of the Passover. And the Passover meal was, in a sense, fulfilled in the Lord's Supper as its successor. We speak of two bloody sacraments of the Old Testament. There was, there was uh, the uh, circumcision and there was the Passover meal. Those were the two sacraments of the Old Covenant. And then we speak of the bloodless sacraments of the new covenant, that being the Lord's Supper and baptism. Whereas baptism has succeeded circumcision, so the Lord's Supper has succeeded the observance of Passover. And so the Passover meal is, in a sense, fulfilled in the Lord's Supper as its successor. Now you'll remember how the Passover meal came into the existence originally. And our pastor has preached on this from the Old Testament book of Exodus. There was a universal judgment of God upon the land of Egypt. And as God prepared to bring judgment upon the land, 
he prepared also a way of deliverance for his people. And the Lord went in the great detail to tell them that when the angel of judgment and death went out over the land of Egypt that night, that there was a way of salvation open to all who would hear the voice of God and hearken to his promise. Take a lamb, he says, without blemish. Take a lamb without blemish. And he instructs every household and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And then the blood of the lamb was to be placed on the two doorposts and on the lintels of the houses. And he says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Hence the name, the Passover. And it was the passing over of God where there was the sign of the sacrificial lamb. And God sent forth his angel of judgment. And there was death in every home of Egypt on that Passover night. Either the death or the, of the firstborn or the death of the sacrificial lamb. And the death of, of the lamb was to be a substitute for the death of the Passover. Of the firstborn. And God passed over in mercy when he saw the blood of the lamb applied to the door. Now, it is, I think, of paramount significance that it is precisely at this time and within this context that Jesus points to his impending hour of suffering. Verse 15. With earnest or fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And notice what is happening here. I think there's something profound in this. Laying on the table before them was no doubt the Paschal lamb which was slain. And there were various cups around there from which they drank, and unleavened bread was eaten. And Jesus introduces an altogether new element into this feast. He does something dramatic and extraordinary in symbolic form. He lays the paschal lamb aside, as it were, and places himself on the table. And he says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And there's some evidence, according to some Bible students, that the lamb that was described at this time in the history of Israel as the body in the Paschal meal. And that what Jesus was indicating here in his own testimony that he was pointing to the reality that he himself is the fulfillment of what was typified by the Passover. And if there could be any lingering doubt as to the proposal of this interpretation, it is removed altogether when our Lord himself takes the cup and declares, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. And Jesus explains, he, he exegetes himself very clearly. What is his death to mean? 
Well, it is in the shedding of his blood in death and the offering of himself as a sacrifice for our sins that he will fulfill the promise pledged by God in Jeremiah 31. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. And so here is the fulfillment of all that the Jewish nation had year by year observed in type and shadow in the Passover. And it was continually refreshed in their memory. This episode from redemptive history that there was to be the death of the sacrificial lamb that was placed front and center in their observance of it. And now Jesus indicates that the blood that he is about to shed is the sum and substance of all to which the ancient Passover observance pointed. My body and given and my blood shed, Jesus is saying, is the ultimate sacrifice for sin that cleanses not simply the outward man, but the inner conscience of guilt. Thus the Lord Jesus says, as Matthew expresses it, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the sins of many, for the remission, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And what the blood of bulls and goats and calves and lambs and the ashes of a heifer could never do with respect to the purifying of the flesh. How much more, says the writer of Hebrews, shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Clearly then, Jesus in self-conscious identity viewed himself as the fulfillment of all to which the Old Testament Passover lamb pointed. His death was the sacrifice which sealed the new covenant and procured forgiveness and above all turned away in an eternal sense the judgment of God coming against us, threatened us by enduring that judgment himself when he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. 1 Peter 2 and verse 24. So this is what our Lord is saying and affirming in the institution of the supper. Now I want to quickly touch upon three words as I bring our study to a close tonight. The first word is substitution. Substitution. You know, I mentioned a few moments ago that there was a death in every home in Egypt on that first Passover night. And that's one of the fundamental truths of the Passover occasion, that there was either the death of the firstborn, according to God's promise, or there was the death of a lamb. Judgment fell on either one or the other. And there is no question but that at the heart of that occasion of God passing over his people in mercy, that the lamb is the substitute. The lamb is the substitute. 
The point of its death was that it died in the place of the sinner. And throughout all the Old Testament system to which Jesus points again and again and declares himself to be the fulfillment thereof. This is the significance of his death. And so testified John the Baptist of him at the very beginning of his ministry. Behold, he says, the Lamb of God who bears away the sin of the world. Now, how does the Lamb of God Bear away the sin of the world. Well, he bears it by taking it upon himself. And dear people, that is why it is so vital for all of us to be sure that we have a sin bearer who substitutes in our place. There are multitudes of sophisticated men and women in the world today who think that's the last thing in the world that they need. But if you think that way tonight, if, you're happy, if you happen to be here as someone who has never truly come to Christ, you need to think about the day when you enter into the presence of an altogether holy God. There is only one thing that you're going to need on that day, and it's a sin bearer. Because you'll be coming before God as a hopeless sinner if you do not have a sin bearer. You remember it was Barabbas. Yes, Barabbas. And I don't know if Barabbas ever became a Christian. There's no indication in the Bible that he did. But I'll tell you this. He perhaps most understood personally and illustrates more perfectly what the language of a substitute means. When he, whom Mark described as a murderer, walked out of that dungeon in freedom from where he was, he was lingering, languishing as a condemned man. He sees there on the cross the writhing form of one who was placed there as a substitute and a sacrifice. And he may well have said, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. My friend, that's what we look to, the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. Substitution is the first word. Satisfaction is the second word. You know that in the institution of the Passover, that the lamb had been, that was provided, they had to satisfy two aspects. The lamb had to satisfy the requirements of an altogether holy God. Take a lamb, commands God, not just any old lamb. But a lamb, firstborn, without blemish, a lamb that will be adequate to bear the sin of men. And the lamb had to satisfy the demands of a holy God. But at one and the same time, that lamb had to satisfy the needs of the people. So every home was commanded, take a lamb according to the number of persons within a household, Moses said. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small, Moses said, or God says through Moses, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it because it had to satisfy the needs 
of the people. And do you see how the Lord Jesus Christ meets both of these aspects of demands for satisfaction? He alone is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. And he alone satisfies the demands of a holy God. And he alone satisfies the deepest needs of sinners like you and like me. As the writer to the Hebrews tells us, Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. In things that are merciful, that he might be a merciful and high, faithful high priest. In things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's why the lamb was eaten, you see. That's why the Lord's Supper is not only prepared but consumed. Because in Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, there is satisfaction for the human heart. And if you're ever trying to seek satisfaction somewhere else, it'll never be found but in Jesus Christ. So there are the words substitution, satisfaction. Now here's the last word participation. And you'll remember that in the Passover, participation was clarified in that the command of God was that the blood had to be applied. It was not enough for the lamb to be slain, but the blood had to be applied to the doorpost. You had to be sheltered individually under the doorpost that had been applied by the blood. And in the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine had to be consumed. Now, what is all of this saying to us? Well, simply put, it is saying this, that Christ, the glorious Savior that he is, in all of the fullness of his sovereign, redeeming grace, he has to be received. He has to be received. Bread and wine will never nourish your soul or body unless you receive it to the good of your soul. And Christ will never profit you unless you have received him. And so as I close this evening, I pray that if you have not received Christ, that you will do so to the everlasting good of your never dying soul that you will not depart this place tonight without such a Savior. The empty hand of faith, it stretches out to receive the crucified Christ. I plead with you, make him yours. Let's pray.